So we're starting a new, we're starting a new sermon series today. Um, it's called Signs of Life, and the name comes from uh, these values that our district superintendent, the district superintendent, Carlos Rap- Carlo Rappanut, uh, developed these over the course of his first year as a district superintendent, and then, of course, his previous year as, as a pastor. Um, trying to look at what it, what does, um, what, what are the signs by which you can tell a church that is um, vital, as opposed to a church that is that is plateaued or maybe in decline. So, how can you tell a church that is in decline? So, um, or that is that is vital. So that's that's the idea behind the sermon series. And I, I tried um, to get Carlo here for a couple of different occasions, and Carlo's a busy guy, so he could never come. And so I finally decided, well, you know, it's been a year. I need need to just do this myself. So that's what I'm going to be doing over the next couple of weeks. Um, I agree with Carlo about all six of these values that he's going to be, um, or I'm going to be presenting to you in in in, in his uh, space. Um, I will tell you there are four that I'm absolutely excited about. In fact, one of them is so so important to me that I'm going to pull it out and I'm going to make it a sermon series of its own um, in the fall. So that's going to be a multi-part series talking about one of the one of the four values that excite me. Um, the other three excite me. Today's one of those. Um, and then there's two that that I agree with. One of them, it's like I would give it a different spin than Carlo does, and I'll tell you about that when we get there. The other one, it's like I agree with him, but it's just really not my thing, and maybe it's more of a district superintendent thing, so so we'll talk about that too. But before we talk about any of those, I want to tell you about my summer vacation. Because that's I, I never got cured of that when I was back in um, elementary school. So so I had summer vacation last week, and I feel good. Um, it was a week-long vacation, and it's been a week, and I still feel good. So that tells you, you know, if the if the cure lasts longer than the vacation, that's a good sign. So um, that's where I'm at right now. And before the vacation, I had a week of study leave. And if anything, I'm even more excited about that. So I want to tell you about my study leave. I went to a conference called the Purpose Driven Conference in um, uh, Southern California at Saddleback Church. That's me there. Um, and I, I went to the I went to the church basically just because I like Rick Warren. Um, many of you know. Uh, back up a minute first. Um, so so I like Rick Warren uh, because um, many of you have heard of Rick Warren. He wrote this book um, called The Purpose Driven Life, and it sold about a quintillion copies or something. Um, it's it's just all over the place. He he issued a, a second edition after ten years, and it's a really good book, and I recommend it to anybody. But before he wrote The Purpose Driven Life and became a household name, he wrote a different book. He wrote a book called, uh, sorry, Purpose Driven Life. Look for it in bookstores everywhere. Good book. Recommend it. Um, we did it in the prison ministry I was part of, and it was very effective there. So we did it here. So do it every year. It's a 40-day thing, so do it. Um, before he wrote that, though, before he became kind of a household name, you know, the preacher to America or whatever, um, he wrote this book called The Purpose Driven Church. And um, uh, it made him a household name among preachers. Um, he sold a million copies of this book. There are 300,000 churches in this country. That means, on average, every church in America has three copies of this book. So um, The Purpose Driven Church is just uh, an amazing book, and it talks about how to do church. It doesn't, it doesn't try to institute a new uh, theology or a new denomination. It just says, assuming you're comfortable with where you're at as a church in terms of your theology, how do you do it well? So it's, you know, the stuff they don't teach you in seminary, that kind of thing. So um, 
It's a great book. And um, if you're interested in church leadership, um, again, I can recommend that book as well. So I went to the conference just because I like I like Rick Warren. I really do. And so I went to the conference, and uh, within three minutes of the opening of the, the first session, he said, this, this conference is new hope for your church. This conference is about congregational vitality. And I had just gone because I liked Rick Warren. And as soon as I got there, I found out Rick Warren had prepared a three-day conference for me to talk all about the things that Carlo has told me, this is really an important thing we need to move forward on. So so I thought, good for you, Rick. You, your timing is impeccable. So um, uh, so the next picture, um, Rick Warren and I are like that. He, he told everybody in the, in the audience that we were his best friends, and he said, we're, we're this close. And he said, get a, get a selfie with me. So we all did. Um, that's him. Back up a second. Um, that's him up on the stage there in the black. So uh, he's getting a selfie with us and vice versa. And then we, I, I, got, an, I got another picture um, of him later on. So that's me in the Aloha shirt. He's moved on from Aloha shirts. Um, and uh, um, and uh, I, as I said, he's not selling a denomination. He's not saying you've got to become a Southern Baptist. And in fact, there are speakers there who illustrate that. Let me show you the next slide. This, the people on this, um, this is a great picture. These are people who've got purpose-driven churches. They were excited by the book. They read the book and they began implementing some of the ideas in it in their own congregations. The guy on the, let's see, on the right is, is Dr. Satish Gamar. And he is the pastor of the third largest church in the world. And despite the fact it is so large, it is the fastest growing church in the world. It's in Hyderabad, India, which is a very um, a Muslim, uh, there's a lot of Muslims in that part of India. So despite the fact there's a lot of Hindus, a lot of Muslims, this is the fastest growing church in the world. There are 150,000 people who attend church every weekend at his church. And um, it's called Calvary Temple in Hyderabad. You can look for them on YouTube. They've got videos. I have no idea what they're saying. So, um, But... Um, but they have two buildings, um, and somehow they cycle 150,000 people through the main building and the overflow building next to it. So how they even do that is is amazing to me. The guy on the left is Father Michael White, and he's the parish priest at a Catholic church in Baltimore uh, called uh, Church of the Nativity. And he's more interesting to me because I'm not going to have 150,000 people in my church, but he's the pastor of a local parish with a very liturgical order of worship and theology and so forth, much more like us. And I love the fact that the purpose-driven church model uh, extends from one end of that spectrum to the other. So um, uh, they had great speakers, um, but the best part maybe about the conference was before be, or between the different sessions, there were opportunities just to connect with people who were in the audience. So here's a guy I met. His name is Francis, and he's from Wawanda. And I just heard amazing things about what's been going on in Rwanda. You know, many of us remember the genocide 20 years ago. Um, it's just amazing what God has been doing in Rwanda over the last two decades. And he had some amazing stories. And um, maybe someday I'll get a chance to share some of them with you. Um, the next picture is a guy from, let's see, he's from Taiwan. Sorry, he's from India, but he grew up in Taiwan. And now he's serving a church in Virginia. And I love that kind of global character to to the church. Um, and his name is Sama. And then this last person, I, uh, I met several others, but I want to show you one more. And then I'll stop with the slides. So I'm not going to read this name uh, because she and her husband 
are uh, pastors of a church in Russia. And she told me about a problem that's a brand new problem in Russia. Um, maybe some of you have heard it, maybe you hadn't. I had not heard of it then, uh, but it's been in the news since it had just been passed. And she was really concerned about it because um, what the the Russian legislature had passed was a new law that restricted church activity. All religious activity was restricted to churches. So churches, I mean church buildings. So if you could do the next slide. Um, you may have seen these uh, now in the news. Uh, Russia seeks to ban evangelism outside of churches. No religious gatherings at home. So you can't invite some church people over and study the Bible at home in Russia by law. Um, you can't you can't uh, evangelize on a street corner. You can't rent a storefront and say, we're meeting in this storefront for our church service. You have to have an officially approved church building in Russia to do church. And the reason for that is that Vladimir Putin doesn't like religious people any more than Caesar did. And for the same reason, back 2000 years ago, Christians said, Jesus is Lord. And Caesar wanted them to say, Caesar is Lord. And Vladimir Putin wants them to say, Putin is Lord. But religious people believe that there's an authority that is higher than the president of your country or the emperor of your empire. But Vladimir Putin's in a fix because he can't do what Caesar did because he found out it didn't work. When Caesar oppressed the church, the church grew. In 300 years as an underground movement, the church went from an obscure cult over in the corner of the empire to the state religion of Rome because the Roman Empire oppressed it. And Putin may not be a nice man, but he's not stupid. He was a KGB officer, and he knows that during 70 years of communism, the church could not be destroyed by the Russian government. He knows oppression doesn't work, and if he's got any doubt if that's true, he can go call up the head of uh, the Communist Party in China and find out what happened there. When Mao expelled the missionaries in the 1940s in China, there were a few tens of thousands of Chinese Christians. When it became legal again in the 1980s, after three decades of intense persecution, there were millions of Christians in China. You cannot succeed at stopping the church by oppressing it. So what is Putin going to do? He's in a fix. He doesn't trust people who have an authority that's higher than him. But he knows that oppressing the church won't work. So what is Putin going to do? Putin knows what Jesus knows, which is the church is least effective when it's in a building like this. So Putin said, go ahead and do church. I'm not going to stop you from doing church. Just make sure you do it in a building just like this one. Don't do it out in the streets. Don't do it in a storefront. Don't do it in your homes. Because Putin knows that's the way to make the church least effective. So if you're following in the outline, the church is most effective when it goes on mission. The church is most effective when it goes on mission. Now, Jesus told us this. This is not news to us. We don't need Vladimir Putin to tell us this. Uh, Jesus told us this. Famously, at the end of Matthew's gospel, he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Could we have the slide? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. He says, Putin is right. He does not have as much authority as I do. Therefore, do what? Stay and attract 
No. He says, go. Jesus said, go. And Putin is afraid that people will do what Jesus said. Now, we know that. Jesus says it. Vladimir Putin says it. What's left to be said? Well, there's actually some theory behind this. Some people, for the last 2,000 years, people have kind of asked themselves, what was Jesus getting at? Why does this work? Why is this important to do this? And there is a study of um, theology called called missiology. The word mission means to send something. Um, if I if I transmit something, if I have a transmission, that means I'm sending something across. If I remit something, I'm sending something back. So a remission is sending something back. The word mission means to send something. And so the the theological field that is devoted to the study of God's mission, the the sending of God into the world. Um, is called missiology. And there's a book that I had to read six years ago, six or seven years ago, called The Forgotten Ways. It's by a missiologist named Alan Hirsch. And I hate this book. This is the best, most hated book I know of. Um, and the reason is I was in a program of continuing education where I got a, I got a stack of books and me and my cohort had to read a different book every month and then get together and discuss it for a full year. And so every month I was getting hammered with the reality that the church that I was now a pastor in wasn't the church that I signed up to be a pastor in. Not only wasn't it, but it won't ever be. Because I grew up in a church in the 1960s. And I know what that church was like, but that church doesn't exist anymore. The church of Christendom, the church that many of us grew up in, doesn't exist. Because we used to understand this is Christendom, and over there in Africa or Asia or maybe Latin America is the mission field. And we understood that's the way the world was organized. And then we found out the mission field is across the street. It's at work. It's maybe in our own home. It's at school. The mission field is our zip code. It's not just some other continent, some other place. The mission field is all the people we know who don't know Christ. So, Alan Hirsch talks about why that is. And in this book, um, uh, it was the one where, where I finally gave up and said, all right, the church I wanted isn't the one that I'm going to get. I'll take the one that Jesus wants. So this book talks about that. In it, he talks about why Jesus is right here, why Jesus... Um, why he thinks that Jesus said to go. And he talks about something called missiological distance. So I know that's too small to read, but what he says is, you've probably had this situation. You, you want to tell somebody about Jesus. Let's, let's hypo, hypo, hypothesize that you wanted to tell somebody about Jesus. Well, if you're in the olden days, if you were a, miss, a missionary, what would keep you from doing that? Well, you're far away maybe, but you can get in a boat and go there, and so now you can do that. What happens then? Well, you're going to be, you're going to be confronted with some barriers. You don't speak the language. You don't speak the food. You don't eat the food, right? There's a lot of adapting you have to do to bridge the gap between you and the person you're dealing with. So there's cultural issues. There's linguistic issues. There's religious issues. They've probably got a religion of their own. So there's a lot of barriers between them and the gospel. And if you sit in your home church waiting for them to come to you, they don't even know there's a reason to because the distance is so great. And so what missionaries in the past figured out is what you do is you close that gap. The, the 
remedy for distance is closeness. You just move closer. So you can't stay where you're at and expect people who don't understand your language or speak your food, uh, eat your food, uh, who don't understand your culture to ever understand the gospel. So if you're a missionary, how do you do that? Well, that's what they did 200 years ago. Well, what do they do now? Today, you know, if you're going to be a missionary to people in your own hometown, you have to figure out what is the, what is the gap that you need to close in your own hometown. But whatever it is, you have to go and close that gap. You can't sit back in your church expecting them to come. So that's what Alan Hirsch talks about in his book. And I know where you're at right now. You're saying, first of all, this is a long sermon. Second of all, I know what he's talking about. He's saying I should be an evangelist. And I don't want to be an evangelist. I'm no good at it. I tried it that one time 17 years ago, and I swore it off as a bad effort. And besides, there's those people on TV, and I'm not going to be that guy, right? I just know. No, no, no. So that's the way a lot of us view evangelism. We just say, not going to have anything to do with it. But here's the thing. Jesus wouldn't tell us to do something without telling us how to do it well. And I think a lot of the reasons we don't like evangelism is because we don't do it the way Jesus says to. So what I want to do now is I want to look at the way Jesus says to do evangelism. So if you've got your scriptures, let's let's open them up to um, Luke chapter 10. Because just Jesus gives us a three-point strategy for evangelism. And you know what? I can promise you it's going to work, not because Jesus said so, although that ought to be good enough, but because we can look back on 2,000 years and say, of of course it worked. I mean, we're here, right? This is the strategy the church has used to be effective in evangelism. So we read that um, after this, after what? The Lord has just set his face for Jerusalem. He's been up in Galilee. He's been doing miracles, but now he's headed for Jerusalem and the cross. So he's on his way to the fulfillment of his mission. After this, the Lord appointed 70 others. Notice not 12, not just the three favorites, Peter, James, and John. 70, this is the great majority of Jesus' disciples are commissioned to this work as missionaries. He appointed 70 others, and he sent them on ahead of them in pairs. In pairs. Uh, there's, a, there's a whole sermon there, Ministry Loves Company. Um, there are... 57 things you cannot do as a Christian by yourself. They're, they're the, the one another commands. Whenever Jesus says, do something, love one another, do something one another, you can't do that by yourself. Ministry loves company. Jesus is telling them, don't try to do this yourself. But he says, get some help. And he says, go on ahead of you. He says, the harvest is plentiful, the laborers are few. Therefore, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So he says, be prayerful about this. But then he says, go. He says, go on your way. See, I'm sending you out like lambs in the midst of wolves. We'll come back to that. Carry no purse, no bag, no sandals. Greet no one in the road. Get to it. Don't don't stand around packing and, and don't get distracted on the road chit-chatting. He says, get going. He says, whatever house you enter, first say, peace to this house. And if anyone is there who shares your peace, your peace will rest on that person. But if not, it will return to you. He says, don't impose this on people. If they want to hear it, that's great. If they don't, that's fine too. There's probably another set of missionaries coming up behind you. okay? Or maybe you're the ones coming up behind somebody else. He says, you don't have to impose this on somebody. You, you try to tell somebody at work about Jesus and they say, I don't want any part of that. That's fine. Don't be that guy. Don't be the obnoxious Christian. 
He says, if they, if they want to hear it, peace to you, that's great. If not, don't be that guy. So he says, um, then in verse 7, he tells us how we can do this. He says there's three steps. He says, remain in the same house, eating and drinking whatever they provide, for the laborer deserves to be paid. You know, partly, I think it's just partly realizing what you've got is worth hearing. You know, I think a lot of us kind of, you know, you know, I don't know if you want to hear this or whatever. Think about how important your faith is. And say to yourself, is this worth, is this a message worth hearing? He says, do not move about from house to house. He says, stay in the same house, eating and drinking whatever they provide. Do not move around from house to house. Why does he say that? He's saying, take some time. Get to know this person. Listen to their story. Don't start with your story. Listen to their story. Get to know them. Live with them a little bit. Understand where they're coming from. Build a relationship. Jesus says, start by building a relationship. Then he says, whenever you enter town, it's people welcome you, eat what's set before you, cure the sick who are there. Now, I don't know about you. When I read this, I say, well, I don't do miracles. Sorry, Jesus, I don't do miracles. But that doesn't mean I can't cure the sick. You know, we have these things called doctors and hospitals. We just prayed for some people. Maybe that's what I can do. Maybe... Maybe my problem is God's already doing everything I've asked him to do. And maybe what I need to do is pray for the people in the situation. But beyond that, maybe there's something else I could do. Maybe I can take them to the doctor. Maybe I can buy them some medicine. Maybe I can take them to the program where they can get help for that. What Jesus is saying is not so much about do a miracle to cure somebody as bring healing into their life. Demonstrate in a tangible way God's love for them. Do that. And then, finally, he says, tell them the kingdom of God has come near to you. Let them ask you, why are you doing this? Why did you just buy a medicine? Why did you take me to the doctor? Why did you bring healing into my life? And the answer is because I serve a God who loves you, and he knows you, and he commissioned me to get to know you myself. And when I did, I found out that there was something that God could do for you, and so I invested in that, because I know God wants it too. The kingdom of God has come near to you. And I think the reason we don't like evangelists is because so many times they start with step three. They don't invest the time to get to know somebody, to hear their story, they just come in with a cookie-cutter solution and they say, do you know the four spiritual laws or whatever it is they, they want to do? They don't spend any time getting to know somebody, getting to hear their story. And they don't demonstrate God's love in a tangible way. They don't spend any time saying, this is how much God loves you. They just say, take it on faith. Some guy died 2,000 years ago and therefore you know God loves you. Well, maybe that's true, but is, are people going to respond to that? the way they would if you said, here's how you can tell that God loves you, because he's bringing healing into your life right now. I think so often the reason we don't like evangelists is because they start at step three instead of at step one. And if we're going to be effective in evangelism, we should start at one. We should do what Jesus says. We should build a relationship. We should bring healing. And we should um, explain our motivation. I said that there's... 
a reason that Jesus does this. I talked about the missional distance. Part of the reason we close the distance is because it it brings us into a place where we can actually communicate the gospel to people. There's another reason. Jesus gets at it here. He says, he says, take no, take no purse, no bag, no sandals. He says, get out of your comfort zone. He says, you know, we run things here, right? You, you, you give money to the offering. You, you are on the, the board of elders. You know, you're in charge here. Out there, all bets are off. If you're talking to somebody at work, if you're talking to somebody at school, your neighborhood, you're not in charge there. And Jesus wants us out of our comfort zone. Because when we don't have all these other things to lean on, we have to lean on Him. One of the, you know, I just love the way Jesus does this stuff. His goal is to save souls. But He does it in a way where our faith is deepened. If you want a deeper faith, Lean into Jesus. And what better way to lean into Jesus than to get out of your comfort zone where you know how things work, where you know the rules. Get outside your comfort zone. So he says, when we are outside our comfort zone, we have to trust Jesus. So, what do we do with this? There's a couple of things I think we should do with this. And I'd like to make a, I'd like all of you to make a commitment to do one of them this week. And that is to pray for the church in Russia. I want you to make a commitment to pray every day this week for the church in Russia that they could be delivered from this act of oppression on the part of their government. And I'd ask you to pray for the government of Russia as well because they have gotten between God and his church. And that's not a safe place for them to be. So I ask you to pray every day this week. It doesn't have to be a long prayer. It can be God help the church in Russia. But do it every day. Pray for the church in Russia. Pray for the government of Russia. That's the first thing I'd ask you to commit to do. The other one I'm just going to ask you to do, and that's to do what Jesus said. Do the thing that Vladimir Putin fears. Go be the church outside this building. Think of somebody you know who doesn't know the gospel. Somebody who doesn't have a relationship with Jesus. And be a missionary to them. Do the three steps that Jesus talks about. Build a relationship. If you, if you're thinking of them already, you probably have a relationship. Bring healing to their life. Maybe that means you need to change because I'm the problem. The reason that they're such a nasty person is because I'm a jerk. And maybe that's the way you can bring healing to their life. But bring healing to their life. And then when they say why, tell them it's because God loves you. Be a missionary to someone you know or someone you don't know yet. This week. I was listening to my wife. She's at a thing up in Wasilla today. But she was talking to somebody and they said this line. They said, I'm tired of the flag being at half mast. Isn't that the truth? I am so tired of seeing the flag at half mast. You know, We see coups in Turkey. We see shootings just today. Again, police being killed in Baton Rouge, killed a week ago in Dallas. We see police that are acting what certainly appears to me to be out of control themselves in Baton Rouge and in Minneapolis. We see nightclubs, people in nightclubs gunned down. We see 
trucks driven into crowds in France, the world is aching. And God's heart breaks. But when God looked at the world and saw what a mess we're in, he didn't stay in his cozy, comfy space. God sent his son. God went. And Jesus calls the church to do the same thing. Because the church is the hope of the world. You know, there's a place for police officers, and there's a place for, for governments, and there's a place for the UN Security Council. But the problem is not something you can fix that way. All you can do is restrain the evil. Martin Luther King said, the law cannot change the human heart, but it can only restrain the heartless. But the problem in the world is in the human heart. Jesus calls us to tell people the good news that God sees what they're up to, sees the way they've been hurt, sees the way that they are hurting others, and tell them he loves them. The church is the hope of the world. I have finally one mnemonic. It says, go. G is for God's mission, and O is for outside. God's mission is outside. Let's be a part of God's mission because the church truly is the hope of the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give thanks that you look at us in all of our troubles and do not shy away, but you send your Son, Jesus. You've sent your Holy Spirit, and you call the church to go into the world. And we pray, Lord, you'd guide us so we can be effective in bringing healing and hope to a lost and hurting world. We pray it through Christ our Lord. Amen.